last name in the podcast game, Ken and Mila are the unacceptable podcast. I'm in an entertaining mood. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the unacceptable podcast. Uh, we're ooh, being, ooh. we're being joined today by Akiva Malamet uh, again. He is just coming on right now. Hello, Akiva. We are going to be talking about postmodernism because um, last episode, Ken and I kind of touched on it. And uh, I, uh, I think that it's good to hear from people who uh, actually do identify with postmodernism and who have a defense for it because what Ken and I were talking about is that in Marxist circles uh, that I'm in, they're not, it's not very highly regarded and in conservative uh, or libertarian, some libertarian circles is also not highly regarded either. So we're going to be talking about that today, but first off, how is everybody? It's hot. It's muggy in Montreal. I just moved here. I got all sorts of adrenaline trying to settle a place to live. So I'm doing good. I see there's a cross behind you, Ken. Yes in the place uh, where I'm staying. Mm, your savior right there. Papa How's bless. <laughs> should, should I whip out my star David? We can have like a battle. <laughs> <laughs> you got all three uh, represented here. What do I, I have like a LaCroix can. <laughs> <laughs> That's the third major religion. The three Cap- genders. Capitalism, capitalism the third religion. The, the, yeah, the three genders right there. I'm doing all right. Um, just winding down to get the fuck out of this country, move to Queen Kingston, throw her in my MA. Um, oh, you'll enjoy this. So, um, from 1940s. Um, <laughs> Sorry, guys, we're having mic, we're having volume issues. Mic check. Ha, ha. Mic check. Ha. What, what, what? Last week the it was Ken, Ken breathing. Do you rap, Akiva? I do not rap because I am very white. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> no, I don't. Well, also because I'm bad at it. Fair I mean, enough, Eminem, Eminem is is a great rapper. So. Indeed, he is. I'm glad that's yeah. acknowledged. His new album is actually good. Just is it really? Yeah. I see. I I, I maintain he should have quit after relapse. Well, he's definitely okay, so, unfashionable now. But so I, I, I mean. It's so, just, yeah, it feels I, like the bit's gone on for so long. So I it's agree. like the chilies. I agree. Um, I'm not saying oh. it's a masterpiece, but it's not shit, is what I'm saying. <laughs> it's, it's worth a listen. Um, at least, okay. like, the first half, I thought, was pretty solid. Um, I don't know. He's got, some, he's got some solid stuff, but he's got these collabs with mumble rappers that are terrible, and I'm just like, uh... Um, yeah, that's funny. I want to hear that. Yeah. Like he's like Whoa. rapping so fast, and they're like, I know it's it's really so. He actually has this song. So he's got this song called uh, Godzilla, which is basically like Rap God Part Two because he just goes crazy with the like rhythms, and it's really okay. impressive actually. But yeah. the choruses are all this mumble rapper who just sounds like total shit, and it's really it? weird. Uh, Juice World. Okay. Died, names. I hate the new rap names. I, I yeah, they're terrible. Yeah. Makes me feel. Yeah. Racist. My new rap name's gonna be like Little Yid or something. 
what 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 would Eminem think of postmodernism? I don't think he has an opinion. But but if he did, if if you could condense it down <laughs> for him, let's go through like all the all the rappers. Are there postmodernism? Post I I mean like modern rappers. I think it's style, you could say. Okay. Like like I don't know if you either of you know who Aesop Rock is. Oh yeah. Um, so he's name. like a more he's more of an indie alternative rapper. He's like you know for the cool kids, <laughs> or whatever. But he has these very like stream of consciousness, like switching perspectives, kind of weird storytelling, very dense songs, mm-hmm. that which is like very postmodern kind of vibe, versus like you know Fiddy, who's definitely not. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So should um, we just go jump into it and define postmodernism? Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's do that because um, I feel like it's not that well defined. And is it even definable? Oh, is it maybe in the nature of it of the thing yeah. itself? That is, that actually is part of what makes it hard. But I still think you can define it for sure. Um, I mean, I always go with um the one that's given by this uh very famous French philosopher Jean Francois Lyotard. He has this book called The Postmodern Condition, which, you know, lots of dorky types like me are fans of if you're into postmodernism. And he defines postmodernism um, as an incredulity towards meta narratives. So, mm-hmm. a less fancy way of saying that is skepticism about big stories. Um, and what big stories means are worldviews, like the larger. Um, narrative tale framework that you use to understand the world around you. And that could be science, it could be religion, it could be politics, um, it could be all kinds of things. And the idea of postmodernism is just that A, when we say what we think is true, it's not literally true, it's our subjective perspective, and it's a story that we're telling about the way the world works. It's not like a one-to-one correlation between what we think and what the world is like. And that we should be conscious of that fact, right? We need to be like meta about it, to use no more internet sort of way of talking about it, um, and kind of relativize our position in relationship to other positions and realize that what we're doing is creating a story and that's what everyone is doing. And the other thing to say is that that doesn't mean that your story is untrue. Like, you could still have a story that is a reasonable description of the world, but it still means that what you're doing is saying things work in this way. You're telling a a narrative about how things work. So So what is... like my my short definition. Yeah. What what is... is, Do people have a, a, a general assumed motivation of of the point of these stories? I mean, it's like you live in the world, right? You want to understand it. You in a society. It. Yeah. Well, not just in society. You exist, right? You are a yeah. live person. You want to know what the hell is happening, who you are, what what is this thing called the universe? So you try to explain it through some kind of system. Um, and some and that, you know, has all kinds of levels. It it has to do with like, you know, science and religion and more basics kind of fundamentals of reality. And then it can get into more social realms like, you know, politics and gender and sexuality and all that kind of more cultural cultural things. Mm-hmm. So it has multiple levels. But it's like who are you, what's your place in the world, and how do you explain that? Okay. I- 
Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I guess like one um, obvious thing that scares people about postmodernism is its implication for ethics. And yeah. I think this is kind of kicked off by Nietzsche, who um, I think, you know, a lot of postmodernists kind of, whether they admit it or not, kind of draw from him. And that's the sort of idea that uh, various ethics or ethical principles are just functions of power uh, rather than um, something that I guess postmodernists would reject that, you know, these ethical principles exist in nature or I guess, I don't know, Ken had a concern about that as well. I guess like if you um, are, are positing these truths as just relative to power games or whatever then that's scary to people so how (laughs) i think it's a step slightly beyond just the basic idea of postmodernism right because the basic idea of postmodernism like i said is just that all all of us are making up a bunch of stories the step beyond that is that some of these stories are false right and they're not essential to the way the world is especially stories that have to do with the way society works right they're not things that exist in the real world they're things that people made up in their heads and we don't have to accept them that way right Um, and that could be an economic system it could be a gender or sexuality it could be a political system right but it's things that people made up they're socially constructed right that's the the like common phrase mm-hmm. and one conclusion you can make if you think that system is problematic is that it's a product of power and the only reason this thing is here is because some people want to impose it on others um, that isn't necessarily the case um, in some situations it is in others I think it depends and you know we can kind of break down different examples I think it's probably true in the case of gender but less true in the case of certain kinds of political systems depending on what we're talking about um, you know, and like we could have like debates about democracy and whatever, and Milik and I and I can go on a whole philosophical rabbit hole. Um, but like, it's a conclusion based on the noticing that there are things about society that aren't natural. There are ways that we decided to categorize how we are in a group, right? Or how people should be, or. Um, those kinds of things, and there's the assumption that a lot of the categories that we have in society or the systems that we have are because someone wanted to control the process that everyone follows, Mm -hmm. which is kind of logical if you think about it, right? Like, there are people who want power. Um, The question, then, the the debate that you should have, obviously, is, is that true? Um, The problem is that people think that even raising the question is a scary question because they're very attached to the idea that the things that society runs on are a product of nature and aren't things that we made up. And that's because it makes society feel very unstable, right? Mm -hmm. It means that there are no clear guidelines for how society could be. It could just be anything. And what is the world if everything is negligible in that way? So... There are people who run away from it, I think, too quickly. And then, you know, the real debate you should have is like, A, is it true? And B, even if we made it up, that doesn't make it bad. Like, I'm a libertarian, right? Very loudly so, right? I think that capitalism and markets and property rights are all things humans made up. I still think that certain versions of them have value because it helps 
humans accomplish certain kinds of goals about resources distribution and whatever. Um, so the fact that someone we made something up doesn't make it bad. It just makes it something we made up. Right. I think that is a very common uh, misconception. Uh, also, the idea that uh, you know, if you make so if something is made up, that doesn't mean that it's like. Um, I think people assume that what is suggested is that it's just not real at all. Um, so you, you mentioned gender, for instance, um, yeah. which is a very uh, uh, loaded sort of example that a lot of people debate nonstop. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of criticism of postmodernism from the right has partly come from this discomfort with postmodern conceptions of gender um so but i guess you know you still have um people acknowledging other people as like women and men and even postmodernists don't uh fully stop doing that you know like they don't uh they don't just like call everybody uh they, they yeah. Or like cyborg or whatever. I don't know. I definitely go for that as a as a pronoun. I'm cool with Cy cyborg. Cyborg. <laughs> so so yeah, so I guess um when we talk about something like gender, there are critiques of it of the postmodern conception by saying, okay, well, there are biological differences between men and women. Um uh, another glaring sort of uh, opposition to the postmodern uh, critiques of things like gender and stuff like that comes from things like evolutionary psychology uh, or uh, evolutionary biology because they tend to try to naturalize the relationships that we have right now, right? So it's saying, no, this isn't just a, a social construction. This is how we are biologically meant to be. So how do postmodernists respond to this sort of right. discomfort? I should say like, you know, as we said at the beginning, there is no one postmodern answer. That's on true, things. that's true. Um, and also I would distinguish between what I would call hard and soft postmodernism. I'm more in the soft category. Hard postmodernism is that literally everything about the world is just in, in our imaginations. Um, or like there's no such, we can't talk about the idea of truth in any meaningful way because it's just a loop in our heads of what we decided is the case. I don't subscribe to that theory, but I do think it's reasonable to say that we are separate from the world. Our minds are contained in our heads and we don't experience the world in a direct way and that there are systems that we use to access it better. Um, so that's the softer version. What I systems, to. that's really interesting. What systems would we use to access it better? It goes back to the story thing, right? So it's like, you know, different, you, you can you, you can think of the word systems as a synonym for story. You could also say framework or worldview or whatever, but it's some kind of intellectual, um, like, like building, I guess, that you're using to understand what's going on, right? Because you're a subjective human, right? You don't have this bird's eye view of what, everything is about it's just not possible mm -hmm. right um so you have to have some process to, to 
help you filter through information, make connections between different things, decide what is cause and effect, what isn't, you know, what's a reasonable inference, what isn't, those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, that exists in terms of religion and science and culture and morality and all kinds of stuff. Um, to go back to Mila's thing, so there are postmodernists who believe that there's a difference between sex and gender, right? So there's biological sex, right, which, is, which are certain characteristics that you were born with, X, different chromosome combinations, XY or XX, I think, I forget. Um, <laughs> um, and that, you know, separates you between male and female. And so they argue that even though everyone is born with a biological sex, gender, the concept of gender, being a male or a female, being masculine or feminine, you know, wearing lipstick or a dress or not, you know, both those kinds of markers of what it is to be quote unquote man or woman are social products and that people can change what those things are. And that's about how society recognizes you. So it's sort of a transition that's about social recognition and not about biology. That's a more moderate view. There's a more radical view that says that even the definition of man and woman in science is, is, is a construction because lots of people are born with all kinds of different um, genetic characteristics and i don't even mean intersex people i mean that not everyone has the xy chromosome even though they're basically male or basically quote unquote female or they have different kinds of amounts of testosterone or estrogen like there's a lot of variability in the markers for being male and female and so to some extent the science categories that scientists use are um, less clear than we might expect so I'm not a scientist, I'm not a biologist, I don't know nearly enough to say like that's definitely true, but it does seem to me like there probably are some dimensions of the biological discussion that are also socially constructed. I, I don't feel confident enough to say that all of, bio, all of biological sex is socially constructed, but probably some of it is. And I definitely think that, that gender is socially constructed, right? The way that we understand who people are in a social setting. Um, so that's usually how I think about it. And the debate between, you know, people who are hardcore about biology or sometimes it's more a religious opposition, you know, because God created man, male, and female, and there's very distinct categories, um, is just the idea that just because um, you can identify certain biological characteristics doesn't mean that that's the whole story of what people are like. Right, it's a it's some people call it gender reductionism or gender essentialism. Right, you're reducing people to one element of what makes up a person, and there are multiple elements. And so, what a postmodernist would want to do is stress that, let's say, the ratio of what people made up versus what is essential is much higher on the made up side of the scale. Mm -hmm. That's very coherent, and uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think I would kind of come to some of those places myself without knowing it was, you know, what people would refer to as postmodernism. Yeah, well, it, it, yeah. it definitely, like, it makes me think kind of of, like, the sort of classic Butler conception of, you know, performativity. We all kind of perform gender to an extent. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, one of the things, one of the challenges I've found in just theory in general 
and when we start talking about the natural is it's really hard to sort of define first of all like what we mean by what is natural and what isn't you know what is occurring in nature versus like what are we projecting like we have to use language to describe what is occurring and our yeah. language is informed by our social practices as well so it just gets so tangled that i honestly always just avoid using naturalistic language because i also just don't know if it would matter like um i was reading richard dawkins book a few months ago uh science and the soul and he made this point like okay it, obviously he's very anti-postmodernist and he's very like this is whatever but like once he describes you know what's biologically natural he always goes but that doesn't mean that it's favorable like that doesn't mean we should socially mm -hmm. organize ourselves in those ways um i guess then though like what's concerning is to me is that sometimes we tend to like describe certain behaviors as natural and then treat them as like to excuse certain kinds of behavior and that to me is almost like insulting to humans because we should i think one of the sort of things that makes us good is our ability to resist our urges so to speak now i sound like a religious person but that's uh... <laughs> <laughs> i don't think you have to be though right because like if you think of society as meaningful in any way we live in a society guys um like we have to do things to cooperate with other people and interact right mm -hmm. like that's just i mean i think that's true regardless of where you are in the political spectrum like we have to create some kind of system for us to get along and that means we have to restrain some forms of behavior inevitably right um yeah so what are some of the the let's say cultural uh consequences of what could generally be called postmodernism in 2020 that you'd say maybe good and bad or what, what you think about that Right. So I think one of the things to point out is that postmodernism per se, like as an academic body of work, I think has almost zero real effect on culture in, a, in that sense, because these are like really dense books written by like French and German writers that have a ton of adjectives piled on each other and the sentences are very confusing most of the time um, and that kind of thing. But what postmodernism is relevant for is as a framework that describes the kinds of debates that we see within our culture, right? So it's more like a tool that you can have to, to use as a bird's eye view for debates that we have as more normal non-academic people, right? So debates about transgender people or gay people and you know what what is the nature of their identity, right? Or about what is race and what is religion and how do those a lot of identity stuff um, especially in general um, and how those things are created by society or how society interacts with them and the different meanings and um, perspectives that people put on those things or use to create them so it helps us understand that this is a process that's taking place and 
how people might be doing that thing and then to pay attention to when they do it. Um, so like if, if you think about any major cultural debate about um, or debates about culture, about identities and who we are in society, like, you know, nationalism and like, you know, the whole Confederate statues thing in America is also about the meaning that you attach to a statue, the idea of glorification of a person. Is that good or bad? What does it mean to attach meaning to a person? Um, so postmodernism is a way of understanding that this is a thing that another example of humans telling a story. So does it have a does does telling a story have a negative connotation or a neutral one? I think it depends on your vantage point, which is a postmodern thing to say. Um, right? Like I I I'm kind of a, you know, fairly committed to some form of postmodernism and I think of it as a neutral thing in the sense that it's um, just trying to talk about something that we're doing. It doesn't tell us whether those things are good or bad. Um, but, you know, I think if you're committed to the idea that actually our relationship to the world around us isn't so distant, right? Actually, we do know what is really real and what isn't really real, then postmodernism is a kind of, um, you know, like gaslighting, like things aren't really the way that they're supposed to be. So if you think that we really do know what gender is or something, um, and there's no good reason to assume it's quote unquote socially constructed and this is all kind of a fabrication and actually everything is biological, then postmodernism is just a big lie, right? If you have that sort of perspective and you obviously you see that in like conservative pundits and stuff. Um, so someone like that is, is definitely going to experience postmodernism as dangerous. Um, I don't think it's just unique to postmodern to the to the right, by the way. Um, like Mila mentioned, the Marxist stuff before, mm -hmm. and it's it's a flip to that, right? Because Marxists are committed to the idea that society is a very specific way, right? It's structured between classes. There's oppression of the workers by the capitalists, all that stuff, right? So. If society is really that way, that is how it works, then postmodernism's like, well, maybe it's not, maybe that's just your interpretation kind of thing is a problem. And, you know, to the same way that um, a conservative being like, no, gender is nearly this way, and also God said this and whatever, you know, those are those are both definitive statements about society really is like this. Yeah, you know what I've been thinking a lot, actually, and, like, this is me kind of almost reverting back to, like, my high school neurosis, but, like, if you don't acknowledge any sort of, like, higher power, um, then even if you're committed to biological essentialism or biological determinism, there's still some social inferences that you're going to have to make about what like like if even if you say okay like nature has endowed uh there's a male and a female and like that's that um we still don't really know we still can't come to a complete idea of what their roles have to be without imposing a social worldview on it unless like the, the religious people have a way out of that because they say, okay, well, 
this is what God says a woman's purpose is and what a man's purpose is. But if I was just to say, okay, well, biology dictates, you know, women are not as strong as men, there's still a ton of other social inferences that I have to make there uh, about what our role has to be in political society. So I think of like Plato, for instance, um, where he kind of, he acknowledges, like he says, yes, women are not as biologically strong as men, but they're not weak enough to justify not having them in the army or in the National Guard or whatever. Whereas then others like Aristotle will be like, okay, women are not as strong as men. They gotta be in the fucking house uh, making your sandwiches or whatever they ate back there. The Jiro, <laughs> chicken souvlaki. Um, and so, I mean, even then it's so, so I, I wonder, you know, and this is why I think a lot of postmodernism is is indebted to Nietzsche um, in that, you know, Nietzsche was kind of like the first guy to be like, oh, fuck, God is dead. Now we got to like create our own system of shit. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, that's kind of, I don't know what you guys think. Um, I, I think I've, I've articulated to myself that I'm temperamentally inclined to need to orient myself around the idea that there is an objective reality underlying our experience, regardless of how subjective or distorted it might be. Mm-hmm. And I think I've noticed other people have the temperament of much more, the only word I can use, even though it's very vague, is like relative, you know what I mean? Like, oh, well, yeah. um, Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to kind of clarify. So like Akiva, when you think of postmodernism, would you think of that as synonymous with relativism, so to speak? So say like ethical relativism, I think is what Ken's... Even that uh, word is kind of vague in my mind. Yeah, I'm going to Google that. Um, But but yeah, would you see it as necessarily relativist? Yeah, this is a good question. Um, It's one of the like classic kind of slam questions for postmodern that people give to throw to postmodernists like oh well you just think everything's whatever you want it to be um and you live in some kind of fairyland or something um or that like you're giving up on ethics and now like bad people can do bad shit and it's totally cool so the way that i usually respond to this is um, sorry i just want to say i wasn't trying to say that i've like noticed some of my friends are like they function better in a more relative headspace and that's who they temperamentally are, if that makes sense. And that's cool. Yeah. But sorry, yeah, no, go I, on. I, no, I got that for sure. I was just thinking about it as like more like yeah. the classic version of that idea, but like more as an argument versus yeah. like just people's personal lives. Um, but we could also like, if I, after I can get back to like just talking about how it affects people's lives also, um, which is an interesting question about like, how what makes you happy and like how do you relate to your life and stuff it has like a lot of existential dimensions which are cool um but like so the thing is that the all postmodernism at least for me like i i can only another postmodern thing right i can only talk about postmodernism from my point of view and all postmodernism does is remind me that i'm a subjective person but that doesn't mean that I can't try and go through some process of deciding what seems to make the most sense um, and, and like kind of hedge my best bet, right? So um, just because I don't know for sure that an ethical system is like objective in some ultimate sense, 
doesn't mean that I can't say, well, this system seems like it's answering a lot of the questions that I have about ethics, mm -hmm. right? Um, so you, now you could go one deeper, right? Which is, well, why do we care about ethics at all, right? Isn't that also just like a thing we made up? And so this is the, the kind of um, problem that I think a lot of people miss about postmodernism, which is what I went, which is if you go back to my thing about capitalism and property rights, is like just because we made it up doesn't mean it doesn't have value because it has value to us. Mm -hmm. And that kind of is the point. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think ethics would exist unless human beings exist. But people care about ethics. And so given that we care, let's try and evaluate systems that can answer the kinds of questions that we have, right? We care about how we're treated, we care about how other people are treated, that matters to us, right? In, in, in more postmodern language, right, we have a common discourse, we have a way of, we have this thing called ethics and I can say it to you and you understand what I'm talking about. Like it has some coherence to you in your mind. Now we might disagree on what that means, but you understand what, what I'm kind of talking about. Mm -hmm. And that means that we have a way of making it relevant to us and it doesn't need to be something that like God wrote in the stars. Mm -hmm. It just has to be something that matters to us. Mm -hmm. um, now it might also be true that it matters to us because God, God decided it would, but that's like a separate thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is one of the things like philosophers obsess about this, like how do we objectively define ethics? And in my certain ways, I think it's like a very uninteresting question, um, which is like, there are certain things, like there, there is no perfectly good way to transcend our subjectivity. And the only question we can ask is, is the narrative that I have a good way of answering the questions that I have? Damn. Yeah, I find that very frustrating. But fair, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, it is. It's I, difficult. I remember feeling I, really I want more. I want more. I want yeah. to have something that is actually worth the effort of striving for. You know what I mean? Because if it's all just like, uh... Well, I think it's like the challenge of not trusting yourself, right? Like, if life is just what I make it, and I like just some stupid piece of shit, like, who cares, right? But, like you are the life that you have. We all have the lives that we have and we live in the society where we're all trying to create something. And I think some of that stuff's pretty great. Like, and we should give it more credit for being valuable mm -hmm. um, and not be like, like I think we have this ideal and you know, there are probably different cultural sources, probably like there's stuff in Plato, there's stuff in a lot of religious traditions, especially the Abrahamic ones about like, you know, a perfect form of a thing. Um, which Plato literally called the forms, right? It's the ideal thing of any of stuff that exists in our world, or you know, heaven, or in, or, or being with God, or something in a religious tradition. Like, there's some perfect version that we can somehow get at, and to me, that feels just like an illusion, a frustration that we want our lives to be less confusing and less, you know, more of a, less of a process than they are. Um, mm -hmm. But I think we'll feel better if we just realize that they are like that and, and get, get value out of that. Like, I kind of appreciate knowing that I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, like that I have to figure things out and I have to go on a journey in order to exist. Yeah. Well, I, it's like a different sort of weight to me. And I like trade them sometimes. Like, 
I don't have to be, I don't have to figure it out or I, I really want to, and I do have to kind of thing. Hmm. Yeah. I think it, it's like what you were saying too, about how you think some people thrive better. Yeah. When things are like relative. Yeah. But, but I would think that no one would, because I feel like everyone's so scared of uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, well, think, think of like John Frusciante. <laughs> you know what I mean or like I don't know a more common public example that's like just in the clouds not that necess- that worldview necessitates that but mm-hmm. it's just the first stereotype I think of I think you know what I think is funny pomos. what's the pomos postmodernist oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. it's just a chill way of saying yeah I, I laughed it about... like a slur <laughs> well cause it, it's funny to me how like there's like this attribution of the destruction of society to postmodernism. Um, yeah. As though these like, f- like French guys, like trying to lower the age of consent are going to like take down society. Um, I, mean, but... I don't think the consent stuff is what they raise, but yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just messing. But yeah, but I, yeah. I, I do think, um, I mean, because now this idea of postmodernism has come out of uh, just academia, as you've said, and now into, like, common discourse, right? Like, you... Yeah. What it, it's what just it's, a buzzword now, like... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And sometimes it's kind of a catch-all for critical theory or... Um, just, like, left-wing leftism. stuff. yeah. Which yeah. is funny because I do think there is a form of postmodern right wing ideology as well, um, and it's almost like a botched Nietzschean thing that, like, yeah. you know, um, right wing. Do you mean conservative or more libertarian or both? It could be either. Like I've noticed this sort of postmodern uh, secular far right ideology. That that's kind of okay. popular as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I see what like you're Milo Yiannopoulos style of things yeah. where, um, where yeah. it's just kind of like they want to sort of construct their reality or they're viewing existing ethics as a power game as well. Just that yeah. they think that the left is exercising this power and imposing these ethics. And so now they want to try and like counter that and they want to play a power game with ethics as well. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, it exists on, there are libertarians as well. I, I mean, I, I said this on the, on the last episode, I think, you know, like the Hayekians are kind of Pomo-ish. Yeah. Um, and, well, you, you know, know, like a lot of my academic stuff has been like, showing everyone that Hayek and Foucault should be besties. Yeah, they're so. very similar. That's what I said last up, Hayek yeah. and Foucault. Um, so I, I think that, you know, um, well, you know, in everyday discourse, we're kind of saying, okay, um, these postmodern, whatever, they're all Marxist or leftist, whatever. Um, and then there's also postmodernism as it exists in academia, which doesn't quite map on, but I think that it does influence it a little bit. So, like, yeah. for instance, I don't think that most people have read Foucault 
even in university, it's not everybody that reads it, right? I think I've read him like once in university. Um, I read just as much Hayek. I read, you know, um, or there's this there's this idea that, you know, you go to university, you come out of postmodernist because you read all this postmodernist literature and whatever. Um, obviously that's that's a bit inaccurate. Um. But what I do think happens is that there is language that uh, come that postmodernists have used in a certain way, and then it gets diluted through just everyday discourse, and then it becomes uh, this sort of like perverted, inaccurate form that's used by yes. people to sound, and then it, it gives it kind of a bad name. So. One example that I, I always think about is uh, this idea, and I, you know what, this doesn't even come from postmodernism per se, but it comes from uh, some theorists who pick up on uh, uh, speech act theory from JL right. Austin, and that's this idea of speech being violent, right? So like, you know, yeah. you say like, okay, like you've heard the average activist be like, your words are violent or like, you know, you're being violent right now and you say something that's, uh, or your silence is violence. Yeah. That's, or that's your silence, is, the silence is violence thing. That's yeah. more just a slogan that has been around for a few centuries now and it's been applied to different things, but this idea, Wait, do you think, do you think that's true? No. Um, no, but, but there's this idea okay. of, of, um, speech being violent that I think some uh, people have taken from speech act theory, which is a really right. excellent, uh, robust philosophy of language, speech act theory, right? Like, you know, yeah, absolutely. this idea that words can constitute action, right? And that yeah. was, I mean, Austin was brilliant. That's a really great insight. Sometimes words do constitute action. Like when you get married and you say, I do, right? Like that word constitutes an action. It's a relationship, right? You're not just saying words. Yeah, so exactly. Exactly. Act. It's not just speech. But I think this goes down a pipeline. So maybe one person like reads, you know, this account because then there's like feminist accounts of speech act theory, um, where you know they say like, okay, well, certain forms of speech actually enact violence. So like pornography is one of the examples um where they're saying, okay, well, can this be free expression if it's enacting violence or whatever or uh, discrimination is another example where if you say i'm firing you because uh you're of your race that's not just a speech that's also that's also an action that uh your words constitute right your words constitute an act yeah. of discrimination so this is like very blurriness right yeah but this is a very uh, like theoretical very theoretical philosophy of language idea. It's not meant to necessarily uh, create policy. It's just an analysis of how we live each day, right? But this gets passed along, right? And then eventually it gets diluted into slogans, right? Like yeah. such and such is violence. And then if you trace it back, it comes from some valid theory, but uh, it ends up, like I'm sure a lot of people who say speech is violence are not talking about Austin. We're not talking about speech act theory per se. It's just something they heard 
And I think similarly with postmodernism, most people don't read the POMOs. Like most people don't read Foucault or uh, Derrida or uh, whoever else, but they might take some of these ideas in its diluted form um, and exercise that in ways that are unpalatable to the public. If that yeah, sense. I think that's right. Um, that's a really good point. Yeah, like activists will take um, certain material from um, academics who may also engage with political issues, um, or just academic, and you know, or combine them in some way, and then those texts become read by people in different movements. You know, like re reapplications of stuff um, or combinations of things, and then then the people who read the text will sort of say the idea and then someone else will kind of simplify it again as a slogan and it becomes more and more diluted. Um, I think you see that in a lot of different ways. I have many internal complaints about libertarians misunderstanding Hayek. Um, but, you know, it's a common, it's a problem for any like academic intellectual framework becoming much more simplistic when it's used as a slogan or like mm -hmm. as a means for political action because like intellectual frameworks are just about are trying are just about trying to understand the situation they don't necessarily tell you what to do but people want to know what to do because it makes them feel like they have an ori a sense of orientation right right it's yeah. not just like oh this is a narrative um get back to the postmodern stuff so, well yeah yeah, yeah. and, and I, i'm not saying it's just the left that does this that's just an example that i personally kind of saw a lot uh in university yeah, for sure. Um, but like I said, I do think, you know, this exists among a lot of people who, uh, who dilute academic ideas into slogans. I think now in this moment, the hysteria is largely about the postmodernists. Um, but yeah, I, I also think that like this post, any, any kind of academic framework runs that risk of, going down the line and it's also, it's also the thing we said about like group associations so yeah there are a number of ideas that are either invented by academics who are leftists or at least used by leftists after the fact because you know like austin was not a, a like a leftist i think he was yeah. just like a normie liberal type guy normie lab um, yeah you know, like welfare statey, like kind of ballsy person. Oh, um, what a cuck. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I, I love Austin. <laughs> He's great. <laughs> yeah. Such a, um, such a fashy imperialist. Anyway, um, but yeah, like um, that definitely. Yeah, so it's like a collection of associations, and people just think of it all as being, because it goes back to how like politics is really tribalist tribalistic mm -hmm. right and like there are certain sets of ideas that are like from the other team so you're like screw that um so you associate like politics marxism postmodernism all in one group mm -hmm. sorry is, is politics right? like, that's why you see like go ahead ken would you say politics is tribalistic as the function of a narrative or because politics are inherently tribalistic i think both actually right so i think that humans have a natural kind of evolved tribalism that this is where i do get evolutionary theory right there's like a in pre-modern societies there was a benefit to being like banding together and trusting the logic of the group as a means of survival 
Um, and then that created a mentality where we see the world in a very binary way, like trust the group that we're in and don't trust the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of our like evolved subconscious psychology. But then what happens is that in culture, we take that instinct and we blow it up in like a huge way and, and really like lean into it through narratives about you know this group versus that group different races different religions different everything but isn't isn't like invoking some 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 biological argument kind of implying that you're that you're thinking upon an objective line of you know what i'm getting at you mean like that people are like really it, a specific way yeah yeah i mean i don't i'm not a like denier of like there is a truth out there I just think okay. that we are very That's what bad I meant to ask you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it goes back to the hard versus soft thing, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a hard postmodernist, there's no such thing as truth. Mm-hmm. It's just our own fantasy world. If you're a soft postmodernist, you just think that the truth might exist, but we are really crappy at getting to it. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no good way for us in our little pea brains to get a clear, direct relationship. But, yeah. And the best we can do is something that seems like it's doing a bit of a better job. So it's worth the effort. Yeah. No, I definitely think it's worth the effort. Like, I think that, you know, a lot of the stuff that science has discovered has been really helpful. And that is by us deciding that this is a framework that seems to solve problems. Right? Oh, really? Um, so you don't, you don't have the, the, I don't want to use the word faith, but the belief in science is as true as scientists operate on the assumption do you know what i'm getting at yeah so science i think a lot of scientists adhere to a like an epistemology of science i don't know if you're familiar with the term but like a a theory of knowledge about science that science is just them describing the world which i absolutely do not think is true it is them taking a certain set of assumptions and then performing experiments on the basis of those assumptions Mm-hmm. and then seeing if they track, right? Like so, the idea that there are physical laws and they operate in a certain mechanical way or a set of assumptions. Um, so would you like, say, you know, would you, Metzl, yeah, yeah. right, had this thing like, how do you know the world didn't, how do you know the world that we exist in didn't just appear two seconds ago and we just think that it's been wrong all the time? You don't know that. We assume that. Yeah. Yeah, would well, you, that's like, that's some solid philosophy of science right there. So, but would yeah. you say that scientists then should should take just just continue doing science as they think they're doing it, or should take into consideration these these considerations? Oh, I think they should. I think actually a lot of the problems in science have to do with the lack of oh, a cat. understanding that they are not as objective as they think they are. Right. So, for example, there's this um, this was a thing like a year, couple years ago. Um, a so-called replication crisis in psychology, where experiments that were like ironclad gold standard for certain facts about humans because we did this study turned out to not be able to be replicable. Like people couldn't perform them again and get the same results. And what that means is that clearly the people who did the original studies were making inferences that were too large about the dynamics between different things, and they weren't recognizing the limits of their story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think being more conscious of the fact that you are using a framework that you made up makes us more able to do better science. Right. Um, and more and, and having, having less confidence um, 
is a good thing. And also, I think that's how science progresses, right? So there's, mm-hmm. um, there's a really famous book in philosophy of science uh, called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn, who's, who's pretty, pretty sweet. Um, and what he says is that science doesn't just advance, if you look at the history of science, but also like conceptually in science, it's sort of a weird combination of history and philosophy. It's an interesting interdisciplinary yeah. kind of thing. Um, he says that science doesn't really advance based on me giving you new evidence and that you change. It's based on people changing their entire model of how the universe operates, mm-hmm. right? So an example is, right, in the Middle Ages, people adhered to the Ptolemaic theory of the solar system where everything revolves around the Earth instead of around the sun. And Galileo switched that by saying that everything revolves around the sun instead of around the earth. And in order to make progress, they had to re, they had to change their whole model of the entire solar system and basically the universe, how do planets work, right? It wasn't just like, oh, it's the sun instead of the earth now, mm-hmm. right? It, had a, it created a huge change for how they understand the relationship between objects in the sky and physics and all kinds of stuff. So... Thomas Kuhn's point is that what you learn from this is that science happens through what he calls a paradigm shift, right? A change in your story, your framework, whatever. You know, you can think of paradigm as another synonym for that. So I think we could probably do better science if we were more conscious of that aspect of doing it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I was just talking to my brother about this, actually, and about Thomas Kuhn. And... um, I, I think that's really interesting. And it's similarly with, uh, you know, Einstein and, and gravity, that was like huge paradigm shift right there. That changes the way like our physics calculations operate. You know, I remember learning about this in physics and it's just like, like we learned about its history as well. And it's like, okay, well now this is the formula. This is how we're calculating it. And that's thanks to Einstein. You change what? an entire background of assumptions I do think that a lot of like most scientists do have this epistemic humility though I think what happens is that a lot of people who are not in the scientific field tend to try and infer more from what scientists say than uh, what's actually being said so my brother and I have discussed this because he's educated in, in biology and he's saying like okay well a lot of people who read biology findings in mainstream media are taking a lot more from it than what the actual scientific paper says um like this the the finding is actually a lot more humble and and a lot a lot uh just to play devil's advocate though like day-to-day decision making being like metabolically efficient you you do a lot of good generalizations if you want to get things done so like for for it's not science but you know what I mean? It's understandable that people would think in an efficient way as opposed to a scientific way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think everyone needs to think like a scientist on a day-to-day basis. I think that would be exhausting. Um, but I do think that, you know, for instance, um, if you especially like dieting and, and nutrition uh yeah. writing is notorious for this. So well, every day it's will, different. Like literally, so I don't know how people can try and keep up with that. No, I know, but I'm saying like the headlines, what the what say the Guardian reports on a scientific yeah, yeah, yeah. study is not going to be what the study quite says. So my point is that I don't think it's always scientists who are making uh, uh, overgeneralizations or 
or whatever. I think it's it's the people who report on scientific findings. Um, so for instance, like evolutionary biology or psychology might weakly suggest something. And then the way that mainstream media will report on it will say, will make it sound like it strongly suggests something. Mm-hmm. And and that that is, I think, part of the issue is that um, there's also a disconnect between um between you know how scientists do science and how the public wants to I just got uh, bit by a cat, sorry. Oh, is that Jane? Is that my old yeah. cat? Oh my god. Okay. That was my cat in Montreal. Yeah. Um yeah, Jane is Jane's cat. Cats always but betray me. She's, I, I, no, Jane. Jane is especially pain. evil. Don't worry. Um, cats are the most postmodern animal. <laughs> um, but 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 what I'm saying is, you know, in in the way that media operates right now, they have the incentive to report on something the most sensationally as possible to make the headline as provocative as possible. Whereas for scientists, like they're making very marginal claims. And so mm-hmm. there's like a contradiction between uh, how you know a scientist is, is understanding the study versus how uh, uh, the rest of the public is understanding the study. Yeah. And I think yeah. you know that's that's a problem. And maybe we need to teach better literacy in schools on how to understand. Yeah, or how to understand scientific reporting, right? Yeah. Um, because I don't know if that would work. I think people are just tired and the incentive is for people to write headlines every 20 minutes that get clicks. Yeah, but it sucks. Yeah. Well, that's think, you get to feel smart and be like, oh, these idiots. You could definitely work harder at just like teaching kids how to reason, like just processes yeah. of logic. Yeah. I think it would be helpful, like not necessarily science per se, but just like how, how, how big of a conclusion can you make from some statement? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because often people assume really huge things from a certain kind of thing, like it has all kinds of implications, and it's like, you know, it's it's there are different things happen at different levels of probability, or based on different things interacting with other things. So it's more about like allowing people to slow down and kind of just break things into pieces and understand like the complexity of a situation. Mm-hmm. Well, nutrition um, and, reporting yeah. is is notorious. Like it's just awful. Like it'll be like, like the study will be like, we'll we'll do this elaborate thing and talk about you know like some small sort of connection between say like eating red meat and getting cancer, and then the headlines are going to be like, if you eat red meat, you're going to die, and and like if you you're going to die a young, early, painful death tomorrow. Like, yeah it's marketing right like like yeah who want to promote like their thing are like oh like you know are gonna push pay for a know, study maybe well well that's yeah, the thing or, is it or the, just push the idea that it's healthy for you and then create like a cultural meme right like a like a just an idea in people's heads about like yeah. oh if you drink a glass of red wine you'll you know have antioxidants or whatever like Mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff right well there's Um, a contradiction because because uh marketing it's is incentivized to be as exaggerated as possible and science is incentivized to be as as epistemically humble as possible and so that's that i think is is where the the issue lies i do think Um, there is a market solution for this by the way but 
I, there was a market solution, but that's just my low-key libertarian like propaganda. What is um, it? I want one. So, so currently, the way that we rely on things to be good or bad for us is by having the government approve them, right? Like it gives them a stamp of approval. This is good or safe for you, or it does X or Y. Um, but that doesn't stop the thing itself then in the marketplace from being exaggerated. And what we need to do is change our center for authority from whether the government stamped it for sale to whether there are um, market actors that have rated it as providing X or Y set of value, right? So we have like things for cars, right? Where it tells you like the different things that like the value of a car and what level of quality it is. Like we use those a lot for evaluating the like devices. We don't really use it for food very much um, or drugs. And I think actually if we abolished food and safety regulation and replaced it with um, market with with not with market actors whose bottom line is dependent on their ability to objectively rate the quality and claims of X and Y that people could follow, we'd actually be able to navigate products much, much better. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that, because I, I remember in Lebanon being, like, scared about, like, what, like, stuff was okay to drink, because they don't regulate the, uh, the, the food and stuff, and I remember yeah. there was all this caution about, because there's no government body regulating food, sorry, and so there's all this caution about, like, oh my god, don't drink this milk, like, don't do this, blah, blah, blah. and, like, I kind of like having the security, you know, knowing that, like, yeah. My food's been, but I know there's a lack of information, though, right? Like Lebanon, like also just people don't know anything about the product. Well, they do creating a system about like what is in this product. No, I think people know. I just think it's more annoying to like have to because there's so many different brands and it's you have to like parse through. Okay, like which one might make me sick versus which one might like. I don't think the average consumer wants to like do that kind of research. Whereas like if you have like one body of approval i think with food it's different than with like other things with food i really would like my food to be i mean cars are pretty dangerous that's true that's true maybe cars needed to but i don't know i just like pretty sure there are car regulations right yeah there are some there are minimal ones like to prevent it from blowing up but like a lot of the choices people make about the safety of a vehicle are based on looking up the rating in like the Kelly Blue Book, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the car, it's the thing like when people go buy a car, like like car manufacturers will say it was rated this by the car, like a private company, which is the car standards like organization. Um, so it matters for their bottom line that they have to like show you that this independent agency that isn't the government um, has valued it. So, um, I don't know, I, I, I have a certain amount of confidence in that. Um, and I also think, especially because these agencies are, com- these companies are competitive with each other, that it gives you more check and balance. Whereas like the, if the, so I don't, I don't remember what it's called in Canada, but like in, the, in America, it's the FDA, the Food mm-hmm. and Drug Administration. I think it has a similar name in Canada. Um, and like if the FDA decides to do something or decides something is good or bad, there's no countervailing incentive for some other organization to check those things, which means when the FDA fucks up, it fucks up really badly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is why, by the way, drugs are one re it's a reason it's not like the reason one one of the reasons why drugs are so insanely expensive regardless of whether you're no you're like in a social socialized system or not um because the, those costs are still then paid by the taxpayer in a socialized system right um is because it takes so long or it's very difficult for new alternative treatments to come to market because the fda's incentive is to be cautious about letting anything go through because there's so much political fault um like you know blowback if what they let through was bad whereas if they if, if they don't let through 20 drugs that are actually amazing but prevents them from having no blowback because nothing happened as a result of them coming out then they prevent all kinds of lives from being saved but this seems to also have to do with um you know, these like large pharmaceutical companies being in bed with the FDA. Like, it's like almost like they're both kind of corrupt, you know? Yeah. No, so I think it's, it's an, in, it's an interactive system. Yeah. Right? I so I think like, it starts from the FDA existing as a regulator that can be lobbied. But you can like break, I think for like breaking up these large companies would be what, how a good plan. Like, Hey, get away, we'll get away from each other. Yeah. No, or, I'm kidding. I'm gonna, or, like, I don't know. That, I think I've never need, actually. Sorry, go on. I think you need large companies for certain kinds of industries because R and D is very expensive. It just is. Like it takes a lot of money to pay for certain kind of machineries and run certain tests, and you need yeah. a lot of capital to do it. But I think like monopolizing the capital is Mila, an idea. What is that? whenever I hear the breakup companies, I roll my eyes and close Twitter or whatever. But like, what does it actually look really? Like? Your boy Yang wants that. What is what does it mean to to break up like in this way in your way? Wait, are you part of Yang Gang? Yes. Wow, hardcore. Undoubtedly, one one hundred percent. UBI for the win. Are Tech you? Workers revolt. A Yang guy. I like the UBI idea, but a lot of his other positions are very like vague, and I don't even really know what he stands for. Check out his uh, policy page. He's got like four times as many policies I, as Bernie. Yeah, no, um, I saw. Cost, like a lot of the language is very vague. Yeah. Yeah, I like the one about like paying the basketball players. The, I don't know. The... What, okay, so what does breaking up these companies look like, Mila, in an ideal world? Or you know what I'm getting at? Don't don't go on the whole. You know what I mean? Um, have you read about workplace democracy? Oh fuck. Okay, we'll add it to the reading list. Yeah, I don't think we have enough time to go through. That's not about breaking it up. That's just about companies run along different lines. Yeah, but I do think democratizing production would definitely break up monopolies. I mean, so I'm not against worker monopolies, but one of the reasons that a lot of companies that are not worker run, like that aren't in the marketplace, is because they're not efficient. Thank because you. Because need people to make <laughs> executive decisions. It's really hard for those companies to actually make good make clear consistent you know like responsive decisions um it's just a lot of people arguing with each other about how the collective is going to go next and man you disrespected me and blah 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 like there's a lot i, of I don't think this politics. is yeah but i don't think that it necessarily needs to be like that it just means that you're taking out a middleman like you're just having the people who are in charge of production also running things that doesn't maybe mean that there can't be a hierarchy yeah, but I'm, talk, I'm talking about from an efficiency point of view like right but once once you there's a hierarchy among them then you're talking about bosses right you're talking about the structure of firms that the left 
consistently is critiquing, right, as a problem of, of power relations. So I, I, you know, and I'm not happy about this either, right? I'm not a big fan of power relations either. You know, Foucault, Hayek, whatever. No, but it does but, operate like a dictatorship. But there are efficiency gains. Why don't we do another episode on this? But yeah, sure. But I, I guess what I'm saying is like, if you know, there's a concern about dictatorial power from from the. I, I just think that they mimic the the dictatorship structure. That was my my point. I know, like Elizabeth Anderson already wrote about this, though, so it's not. Yeah, it's a good book. Like I, I recommend Liz, Elizabeth's stuff in general. I think she's like a really great scholar. I don't agree with her about a lot of stuff, but she's very smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I, I gotta go look at a house. Thank you for being on Akiva. Yeah, for sure. Good to see you, Ken. Yeah, you too. Um, are you you moved to Montreal like for a job thing or I'm like here just for the rent and the the, the scene? Oh, just like being cheaper and stuff. Yeah, get out of my parents' house and yeah, Legit. good good music scene here. Yeah, yeah. You, like so. took old, took Mila's old life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Right. About that. Yeah, no, I definitely couldn't do that much work. Um, <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, we'll see you soon. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Peace out.